word and we pray, Lord, that you would please speak to us through it this morning. Um, whether we are familiar with these things or still thinking through the Christian faith for ourselves, Lord, please would you show us Christ and help us to understand. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today for the person at the front to forget their Bible. Now I'm the latest one to do it, so let me go and grab, grab mine. I've got this. Okay. I thought I was missing something. Well, I wonder if you have um, ever had to do jury service. My only experience of jury service was a bit of an anti-climax, to be honest. Um, I wasn't called on Monday, I wasn't called on Tuesday. When I was finally called on Wednesday, it was for a fraud case, and your heart immediately sinks, and you think, oh my goodness, this could go on for months and months and months. Well, after about two hours, the judge had thrown the case out because the prosecution had totally messed it up, and uh, the case just wouldn't stand up in court, and both the accused and the jury were free to go, and that was it. I never had to go back for the rest of the week. Our passage today picks up God's court case against humanity. Uh, but this case has not been put together badly by the prosecution. It's not about to be dismissed by the judge. It's a watertight case, but not an open and shut one. It's not about to be over in a few verses. It began last week, if you were here last week, with uh, the second half of chapter 1. It runs all the way through to the middle of chapter 3. And if you were here last week, you'll remember how it began. Let me read to you verse 18 of chapter 1 again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And we thought about how God is rightly angry with every single human being who has ever lived. First and foremost, because of what it says at the end of that verse, verse 18, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. By nature, we push the truth of God under water, and then we substitute the truth about God with idols, fake gods of our own making. And we saw last week how every single human being who has ever lived and who ever, who's still alive today engages in that worship exchange. We swap the, cre create the creature for the creator. And so what God does is he acts like the judge. He hands us over to the sentence that we deserve so that we can experience the consequences of our idolatry. And he describes that in the rest of chapter 1. We saw, first of all, a zoomed-in example, disordered sex, and then a panoramic view, disordered morality. But Paul knows, even as he describes the ugliness of human sin, that some in the jury are cheering on from the sidelines. There are some in this church in Rome who've just read to the end of chapter 1 and they've responded with a hearty, Amen. Because that all-inclusive buffet of wickedness that we saw at the end of chapter 1 sounds exactly like the people out there and nothing at all like the people in here. But as they turn the page to start to read chapter 1, it's as if they see, chapter 2, it's as if they see one of those World War I Lord Kitchener posters. You know the one that says, your country needs you, and he's pointing the finger. But this poster says, I'm talking about you. Members of the jury, 
Come and stand in the dock and find yourself facing up to God's indictment against humanity. And so there are two questions we need to consider as we work our way through this first section of chapter 2. First of all, how will God judge me? When I stand before God as my judge, what standards will he apply? Will they be the same or different to the standards everyone else will have to face? How will God judge me? And second, how can I be right with God? What do I need to do to make sure the verdict on my life at the end is a good one? I might be a sinner, but how can I be right with God? Those are crucial questions for us all to answer. Crucial questions if we've been Christians a long time or still trying to figure out what it is we believe. They're also vital questions for us to consider together as a church because the answers we come up to will determine the sort of church that we will be. Will we be a church of proud, self-righteous people or a people humbled by God's grace, living in harmony with one another, holding out his gospel to the world? So let's work through the passage using two headings to answer those questions. First of all, how will God judge me? God will judge everyone according to what they have done. God will judge everyone according to what they have done. So Paul picks up his pen to start to write chapter 2. And it's as if he hears one of his readers calling out, Go for it, Paul! You give those wicked pagans both barrels. And so he does a sudden switch of pronouns from they to you. Verse 1, you, therefore. We only find out who this you is in verse 17. Just look at that. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew. But it's the same imaginary interrupter throughout the whole chapter. It is the self-consciously morally upright religious insider in the church. And in the first instance, in Rome, that is a Jewish Christian. But it's not hard for us to consider who that person might be today, is it? The person who's raised in a Christian home, the person who has always attended the right churches, the person who knows the right answers in Bible study, the person whose life on the outside looks practically perfect in every way. But this person better watch out, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You, who pass judgment on, on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's that old adage, adage, isn't it? Whenever we point the finger, three are pointing back at us. No one is squeaky clean. Of course, a self-consciously morally upright religious insider, they, their life on the outside does not look the same as that rotten pagan out there. But just scratch beneath the surface. Everyone has skeletons in the cupboard. Some are just better at hiding them. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 20, that people are without excuse. Now he uses the same word. He says, you also have no excuse. See, our knowledge of what is right and wrong proves that we are in the wrong. We can't get ourselves off the hook. God will judge them by exactly the same standards he will judge me. Verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God doesn't miss any evidence in his case against you and me. There's no missing CCTV 
No half-true witness statements. No hard-to-make-out fingerprints. He sees the full picture. And so we really must be honest with ourselves. Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you would escape God's judgment? You see, just because my skeletons are are better hidden than theirs, just because I know the right people and have the right answers, just because I can see that the way they are living does not match up to God's standards, do I really think God will give me a get-out-of-jail-free card? Do I really think I'm a special case? That's That's the force of the question Paul is asking. But if that question doesn't bring me to my senses, maybe the second will. Do you show contempt? for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Remember, Paul is speaking to the Jewish Christian, and he deliberately uses language that is taken straight out of the Old Testament. It's as if he's saying to them, do you really not know what your God is like? Because even a basic knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures would would make it abundantly clear that God is like this. He is kind and patient He's so extraordinarily good to his people, and yet his goodness is constantly leading them back, drawing them back to faith and repentance, saying, turn away from sin, live my way instead. Paul presents a picture of God having like a storehouse, a treasure house. And in that treasure house, there are treasures of mercy and grace. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn around. But if we turn our back on that treasure, if we refuse to repent, if we refuse to turn from sin, then we we treasure up for ourselves something far worse. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up, literally treasuring up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That word uh, stubbornness is the word from which we get sclerotic. It's a medical term, isn't it? It means rigid, unresponsive, unable to change or adapt. Because spiritually speaking, having having an unrepentant heart means having a sclerotic spiritual heart to us. It means hardening ourselves to God's grace. And if we do that, there's only one available outcome. It's a bit like those um, anti-smoking uh, adverts or anti-drink driving adverts. If you smoke 20 a day and then get lung cancer, you've got no one to blame but yourself. If you kill someone after you've drunk over the limits, you've got no one else to blame for your, but yourself. You can't say you weren't warned. And if we end up facing God's wrath for, for, against our sin for all eternity, none of us will be able to say it wasn't my fault if we chose not to repent. Because on the last day, When we face God's judgment, God will judge everyone according to what they have done. Verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. 
See, Paul says the same thing at the beginning and the end of this paragraph. It's the same points, verse 6 and 11. God will judge me in the same way he will judge everyone else. He's got all the facts, Jews and Gentiles, that's the whole human race, judged by the same standards. God will judge everyone according to what they have done. And so when God applies that universal standard, there are just two possible outcomes, aren't there? Verse, either verse 9, we do good, or verse 10, we do evil. Sorry, wrong way around. Either verse 9, we do evil, or verse 10, we do good. It's one or the other. And one way is rewarded with eternal life. Paul describes that as glory, honour and peace. In a, in a word, heaven. And the other way is rewarded with wrath and anger, trouble and distress. In a word, hell. Two opposite futures determined by the way we live our lives now. God will judge everyone according to what they have done. But doesn't that raise an enormous question for us? Because if that is how God will judge me, can I really have any hope? Or to think about it another way, these good people that Paul describes in, this, in these verses, do they even exist? Because if they don't, what's the point of reading any further? Well, I think the clue is there in verse 7. To those who buy persistence in doing good. See, Paul is not talking about a perfect person. He's describing the direction of life of a repentant person. Someone who knows and understands that they are a sinner. Someone who's not cheering from the sidelines when other people's wickedness is exposed, but is shedding tears of sorrow over their own wickedness and then turning away from sin, being uh, led to repentance by God's grace. See, that person who by persistence does good is the opposite of the person in verse 8 who is self-seeking. That person's default is what we thought about last week. They reject the truth. They suppress the truth. They put themselves at the center of the universe. But the repentant person invests in God's economy, not their own. So, so what do they seek? His glory, his honor, his immortality. Those are the things the repentant person looks after. And so when God judges that person, the evidence of their life proves that they were going in God's direction, not their own. Now this is, a, in a way, a little bit of a trailer. It's a theme that Paul is going to develop much later, more in, later in the letter, uh, how the good we do as God's people is always prompted by our faith in him. It's always the fruit of repentance. But for now, we, we mustn't jump ahead of ourselves. We need to feel, pause to feel the weight of this first big lesson. When I stand before God on the last day, he will look at all the evidence of my life and he will not miss a thing. And so if I consider myself a morally upright religious insider, then I must not cheer on from the sidelines at the thought that those wicked people out there are going to be judged because God will judge everyone according to what they have done. Well, with that somber lesson in our minds, doesn't it become even more important to answer the second question? How can I be right with God? Second, the only way to be right with God is to do what God says is right. Verses 12 to 16. Verse 12. All who sin apart from the law 
will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will also be judged by the law. Now, Paul introduces a a key term that is going to dominate the next chapter and a half, the law, the law of Moses, the law which sets the Jews apart from the rest of the world. They have the law, but the Gentiles are literally lawless. And yet, in a crucial sense, Paul says it makes no difference whatsoever whether you've got the law. All sinners will perish. All sinners will be judged. Why? Because of verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Reminds me, maybe it reminds you of um, that famous parable of Jesus's that we looked at recently in our home groups. Those two builders uh, building their houses. Both builders hear Jesus' words. Only one of them puts his words into practice. His house stands firm when the flood comes, but the other man's house collapsed. Because it is always obedience to God's word that matters, not simply hearing it with our ears or agreeing with it in our minds. The only way to be right with God is to do what God says is right. As Paul says at the end of the verse, verse 13, it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Elsewhere, that word is translated justified. It's a a, a very important word. We're going to come across, across it again in the next few weeks. It means being set right with God, forgiven, regarded as innocent, in his sight. It means having our broken relationship with God repaired and restored. It, it results in our status being utterly transformed so we are no longer sinners in God's eyes, but saints. And the enormous surprise at this, at this point in the story, this point in the letter, is that, that anyone can receive that status. Not just the Jews who hear the law, it's those who obey it. Even the Gentiles. Verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. As I was studying this passage this week, I read one uh, commentator who is the chair of the English Standard Version translation of the Bible, so he's a pretty good Greek scholar. He said um, he changes his mind every time he reads this passage, exactly what it means. Uh, Another commentator I read said, this is a difficult passage, okay? So it is difficult, these two verses, and um, I'm just going to try and give you two slightly different readings of it. I think in in the end they, they take us to the same place, but let me give you both. The first is to read it as it's written in our Bibles in those brackets, okay? The sense of this is just because the Jews have the law doesn't mean they can play a trump card on Judgment Day. After all, Gentile unbelievers can be good people too, can't they? So verses 14 and 15 are describing a Gentile unbeliever in this reading. So this person, they might might not consciously obey the law, but they can still do good things, can't they? Verse 14. Somehow God's law is there in their hearts, verse 15. They still have an idea of what is right and wrong. And their appro- the approval and disapproval of their consciences proves that. 
And so on this reading, Paul is underlining the point made back in verse 12. The self-consciously morally upright religious insider does not have an advantage over the lawless outsider. It's the same for all. The final verdict will be delivered on the last day when God judges all people, verse 16. The only way to do what is right, the only way to be right with God, is to do what God says is right. So that first reading is, this person is a Gentile unbeliever on the outside, but they still do what's right. Now, I think that view makes a lot of sense. Um, But I wonder if there are a couple of problems with it. First of all, it makes verses 14 and 15 a bit of a tangent. So they don't really fit with the flow of the argument. And the second reason is it messes quite a lot with the original word order and sentence structure, okay? So here's a second subtly different approach. Verses 14 and 15 explain verse 13. They don't add to verse 13. And this time Paul is speaking about Gentile Christians, not Gentile non-Christians. So Gentile Christians, these believers, they can obey the law. They can be declared righteous. They don't have the law by nature. That's what the more literal word order says. So verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do do the things required of the law. They don't have the law, they're lawless, but they can still obey the law because it's there written on their hearts. Verse 15, they, they, they have God's law written on their hearts by God's spirit. Paul is echoing this promise from Jeremiah 31. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So they're obeying the law because God has written it upon their hearts, their believers. And then verse 15 flows straight into verse 16, something like this. They're conflicting thoughts, accusing or even defending them in the day when God judges the secrets of people. So on the last day, some, even though not all, of those Gentiles who claim to be Christians will be shown to be the, right, the real thing. Now, if that is the right way to read these verses, I think it's similar to the first, but a bit punchier. It's amplifying that challenge to the self-consciously smug, morally upright insider. Because everyone will be judged by what they have done. Only those who do what is right will be declared right with God in the end. Even those apparent lost causes, even those Gentiles on the outside, they can be believers. And Paul is saying to the, the smug insider, watch out that they don't show you up on the last day. So how, can, how prepared are you and I to face God's judgment? Because we will all be there. We won't be members of the jury. We will be standing in the dock before Jesus Christ, our judge. We haven't reached the end of the court proceedings yet. As I said, they run all the way through to the middle of chapter 3. But we should still be feeling pretty uncomfortable. How will God judge me? God will judge everyone according to what they have done. And so I mustn't cheer on from the public gallery as others are condemned. No, I don't cheer on. I make repentance the starting point of my life. I respond to God's kindness, forbearance, and patience by turning from my sin and persistently doing what is good in his eyes. And if that is how God will judge me, well, I need to ask the the next question, don't I? How can I be right with God? 
And the surprising but straightforward answer at this point in the story is that the only way to be right with God is to do what God says is right. That is true for insiders and outsiders. And this morning, you may be aware that you are kind of on the outside. You're just exploring the Christian faith. You're aware of your sin. You know that sometimes you do what is right and sometimes you don't do what is right. And if that is you, allow those conflicting thoughts in your conscience to draw you to Christ. Cry out to him for forgiveness and a new start. And if we sit here this morning and we consider ourselves respectable, morally upright, religious insiders, we need to remember that on that last day, we have no advantages, no trump cards to play. We must still do what is right if we want to be right with God. And so we need to cry out to God to change our hearts. As it was speaking about there in Jeremiah, that his law is written upon our hearts, that we do what is right that he transforms our lives. So will we do those things today for our own good and for the good of our church as well? Should we bow our heads and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us clearly in your word. We thank you that you warn us of that smug, morally upright, religious insider, and you say to us, we will face the same standards on the last day. So Lord, please help us to repent of any smugness in our hearts. Lord, you tell us that you will judge us according to what we have done, and that that is the way to be right with you, to do what is right. So help us to trust you, and give us your spirit that we would pursue what is right in this life, in the power of Jesus Christ, working in our hearts. For we ask it in his name. Amen.